Welcome to today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger, December 21st, Thursday. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger, and here is our first story. Front page, man charged in MC killing has violent record. Frederick Joseph Olson has faced many charges, including 2013 stabbing. It is written by Douglas Hines and Lisa Gruet, the Globe Gazette. The man charged in a Monday slaying in Mason City has a violent criminal record dating back to at least 1996, including previous charges of robbery and attempted murder. Frederick Joseph Olson, 51, is accused in the beating death of Leroy White, 63, at Olson's home at 1916 South Grover Avenue. According to the Mason City Police Department, officers conducted a welfare check around 1.26 p.m. Monday at the residence and found White's body upon entering the home. The police report alleges Olson assaulted White, causing White's death. Olson is being held at the Cerro Gordo County Jail without bail on felony first-degree murder charges. The charge carries a mandatory sentence of life in prison in Iowa. A preliminary court date has been set for 1.15 p.m. December 29 at the Cerro Gordo County Courthouse. Olson was last released from prison in November of 2022 and completed parole in April. In addition to the murder count filed Monday, Molson is awaiting, Olson is awaiting trial for previous charges, the most recent a November 27 arrest for eluding and operating while intoxicated. According to court documents, troopers attempted to stop Olson for a traffic, <clears throat> excuse me, for a traffic violation in Saragordo County. The defendant refused to pull over and speed away, and he sped away. Olson traveled several city blocks before driving over a curb and into a yard. He told troopers he just got nervous and did not want to get into trouble again. Olson said he did not know why he ran. The defendant stated that he that he just told himself, F blank 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 it. I am going to try and get my truck back to my property so it doesn't get towed. Well, court documents say Olson had red blood shot watery eyes, constricted pupils, and was very hyperactive and re- restlessness. He consented to field sobriety test and showed indications of intoxication, but a preliminary breath sample measured 0. .000. A drug expert evaluation determined Olson was impaired by drugs. He refused to provide a urine sample for chemical testing. The earliest arrest charge on Olson's rap sheet is a domestic abuse charge from 1996. According to Globe Gazette files, he found trouble again in December of 2000 when he was arrested on several counts in a Mitchell County burglary at the Carpenter Bar and Grill, including assault on a police of- a peace officer. Olson was sentenced to two years in prison in September of 2010 for assaulting a correctional officer at Beji Clark Residential Facility. He was arrested again in December of 2012 burglary at Dugan Supermarket in Rockwell. In August of 2013, he was charged with attempted murder in a Mason City stabbing. He was eventually sentenced in 2015 to a maximum of 15 years in prison for the break-in at Dugan Supermarket. It was part of a plea agreement to resolve three separate cases, including the stabbing. 
Well, that agreement was later vacated on April on appeal in 2017. But Olson had since been sentenced in 2016 to up to 10 years in prison for striking a corrections officer and dealing meth. The investigation of Monday's killing was assisted by the Cerro Gordo County Sheriff's Office and the North Central Iowa Narcotics Task Force Special Operations Group. Police are asking that anyone with any information regarding the crime call 641-421-3636. Page 2 of the Gazette. Story, Wisconsin Murder Suspects Apprehended in Clear Lake, written by Lisa Gruette. The Clear Lake Police Department made an arrest Tuesday night involving two Wisconsin residents who are wanted on homicide charges in Michigan. According to a press release, around 6 p.m., Michigan's Houghton County Sheriff's Office alerted Clear Lake Police the two suspects were in the Clear Lake area and were considered armed and dangerous. By 6.30 p.m., officers had arrested 50-year-old Margaret Ann Rose Campanian and Jacob Allen Charles Campanian, it's spelled K-E-M-P-A-I-N-E-N, 20, both of Heartland, Wisconsin. According to a report by Upper Michigan Source TV6, the two, along with an unnamed juvenile, are wanted in connection with the murder of family member 86-year-old Alvin Campanian who was found dead with a gunshot wound to the head in his home in Hancock Township, Michigan. The pair is currently being held at the Saragordo County Jail, awaiting extradition to Houghton County, Michigan. The Saragordo County Sheriff's Office, Hancock County Sheriff's Office, and the Garner Police Department all assisted at the scene. Next article. Uh, It's uh, called the CG Public Health Issues, covid Respiratory Illness Warning, and again, Globe Gazette staff, uh, this and Jared Strong, Iowa Capital Dispatch, wrote this article. Cases of COVID-19 and other respiratory diseases are surging in Iowa on the eve of the Christmas holiday. CG Public Health issued a statement Tuesday regarding a large issue in COVID-19, a large rise in COVID-19, RSV, and influenza cases. According to the press release, the following protective actions should be taken. Stay home when sick. This simple action has a major impact. If you experience symptoms, stay away from others and seek medical attention as needed. Return to normal activity when you no longer have a fever without taking fever-reducing medications for 24 hours. And practice good cleanliness regular hand washing, covering coughs and sneezes, and staying away from those who are sick uh, are necessary for stopping the spread of germs. And get vaccinated. Vaccination remains the best defense against getting really sick from COVID-19, RSV, and the flu. If eligible, ensure you are up to date on all recommended vaccinations. But as COVID cases rise, the number of Iowans who have up-to-date COVID-19 vaccinations has plummeted in recent months. The spread of the disease in the state is very high, according to a recent report by the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services. As of last week, 
about 10.4% of Iowans were considered immunized against COVID-19, according to HHS data. And that is calculated using the state's database of immunization records. More than 60% of Iowans were vaccinated during the worst throes of the coronavirus pandemic, but those initial vaccinations have become less effective over time. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends updated vaccines that boost immunization and are meant to uh, to target currently circulating strains. The CDC issued an alert this week to healthcare providers that warned of low vaccination rates for COVID, influenza, and RSV, a leading cause of hospitalizations among infants. Low vaccination rates, coupled with ongoing increases in national and international respiratory disease activity, could lead to more severe disease and increased health care capacity strain in the coming weeks, the CDC warned. There were 345 new hospital admissions of people with COVID-19 in Iowa last week, according to CDC data. That is higher than any weekly total in December last year and the highest since August 2022. The largest number of new weekly admissions in Iowa happened in November of 2020 when there were more than 1,500. That was before COVID vaccines were widely available. Now on page three of the Gazette, the headline is DeSantis stumps in Mason City. Florida governor calls legal complaint against his campaign a farce. It is written by Thomas Beaumont of the Associated Press. The dateline is Mason City. Ron DeSantis wrinkled his face as he talked to reporters Tuesday and declared a Federal Elections Commission complaint filed against his presidential campaign a farce. I mean, give me a break. DeSantis said after headlining a morning campaign event in Iowa. It was the latest hurdle for the Florida governor with fewer than four weeks left in an Iowa campaign he says he expects to win. The campaign watchdog group accused DeSantis' campaign of coordinating in violation of federal law with the outside super PAC responsible for millions of dollars in advertising and the organizational groundwork supporting him in the leadoff caucus state. Trust me. I have no, there's a lot of things that happen that I wish I had control over, DeSantis said in response to a question about the complaint. Neither the complaint nor the staff turnover in his political operation, including the departure of the Super PAC's chief advisor on Saturday, seemed to resonate deeply according to conversations with our Republicans, Iowa Republicans, at his events Tuesday. I wasn't even aware of any of that, said 54-year-old retired school superintendent Jerry Busman, a DeSantis supporter who traveled 30 minutes to see him in Mason City. Does it influence me? Not really. I've listened to his message, and I think it's the real deal. Instead, DeSantis continued his aggressive campaign in Iowa, campaigning in eastern, northern, and central Iowa, part of a four-day swing with roughly dozen campaign stops. At at a morning event in Cedar Rapids, he ticked through familiar lines over the last several months, including his push for restrictions on race and gender education and his fight against entertainment giant Disney over what critics labeled the don't say gay, don't say gay bill. I did not get elected 
to subtract out my leadership to a woke corporation in Burbank, California, he said, receiving a short ovation before pivoting to critiquing the GOP's electoral and policy strategy before the clapping stopped. In that way, DeSantis' workmanlike campaign style with its few crescendos bellied, belied the pressure he faces, having wagered his candidacy's future on a strong finish in Iowa, where former President Donald Trump leads by wide margins in recent polls and is hoping a blowout curtails the nominating campaign. Instead, he pointed to organizations on the ground, built almost entirely by the super PAC Never Back Down, a tool for delivering support to the January 15 caucuses. DeSantis has also amassed endorsements of key figures in Iowa's GOP network, and notably Governor Kim Reynolds. We've amassed tens of thousands of supporters who are committed, ready to go. We're adding more every day, he told reporters in Mason City. I'm putting in the work. I'm showing up. I'm answering the questions. Ultimately, that's something that's meaningful for these Iowans. Trump, who has visited Iowa less often through or less often, though drawn larger crowds, also claims to have tens of thousands of committed supporters. Meanwhile, former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley has accelerated her Iowa campaigning, with polls showing her competing with DeSantis for second place. In its complaint to the Federal Elections Commission, the nonpartisan watchdog group Campaign Legal Center accuses DeSantis of breaking campaign finance law by communicating about ad spending decisions by Never Back Down. The watchdog group cited recent reporting by the Associated Press and others. The AP reported last week that multiple people familiar with DeSantis' political network said that he and his wife Casey had expressed concerns about the messaging of Never Back Down and were specifically frustrated after the group took down a TV and criticizing Haley, took down a TV ad criticizing Haley for allowing a Chinese manufacturer into South Carolina when she was governor. Eric Kroc of Cedar Rapids was happy the pro-DeSantis super PAC had shed advisors who may have disagreed with him, but that it will matter little to Iowa Republicans. I don't think people are paying attention to that stuff, said Kroc, 45-year-old supporter who works for a grocery store chain, but I do think it shows people are hearing his message now, not someone else's. So that's good. Page four of the Gazette headline is Past Due Nursing Home Inspections Cut in Half, written by Claire Kaufman of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. State officials say they have reduced by more than 50% the number of Iowa nursing homes that are past due for their annual inspection. Last week, the Iowa Capital Dispatch reported that the state wasn't meeting the federally mandated standards for nursing home oversight, with some care facilities waiting up to 41 months for an annual inspection. Federal regulations require that no more than 15.9 months elapse between annual inspections at individual Medicaid-certified nursing homes. The regulations also require that, collectively, the state inspect all nursing homes on an average of 12.9 months, if not sooner. State records and published industry reports indicate that between October of last year and September of this year, the Iowa Department of Inspections, Appeals, and Licensing failed to meet either of those standards. Officials with the agency said Monday 
The federal standards that are now in place were suspended in the federal fiscal year that ended last September. During that time, homes were still considered past due for an inspection after 15.9 months, but the standard wasn't enforced. They say that in 2023, DIAL, D-I-A-L, and other state inspection agencies around the country were tasked with reducing the number of their past due inspections by at least 50%. DIAL officials say they met that goal to the point where only 29 of Iowa's 407 facilities remained overdue for an inspection. Agency added that it expects to meet the standard of inspecting every nursing home within 15.9 months of its last annual inspection by the end of the current federal fiscal year, which is in September of 2024. Industry records show the agency will have to step up its efforts to accomplish that goal. The most recent data published by the Iowa Health Care Association shows how long each home that was inspected in September 23 waited for its annual inspection. The data shows the Good Samaritan Home in George and Genesis Senior Living in Des Moines waited more than 21 months for their annual inspection, and three others waited more than 18 months. On average, the homes inspected that month waited 15.5 months for their annual inspection, significantly longer than the federal government standard of a 12.9-month average between annual inspections. The delays appear to have peaked in late 2022 and early 2023, when the gap between annual inspections was, on average, close to 18 months. Several of the Iowa nursing homes that were inspected during the past year waited close to two years, if not longer, for their annual inspection. For example, the Northcrest Community Facility in Ames went 41 months between annual inspections. The Good Samaritan Home in Holstein waited 34 months, and Mercy One Medical Center in Centerville waited 28 months. In all, More than 150 care facilities waited 16 months or longer for their annual inspection. Between their delayed annual inspections, some of those same homes were the subject of numerous complaints that resulted in fines and citations from Dial. In early 2020, before the pandemic resulted in the temporary suspension of certain inspection standards, Dial was reported as having failed to meet the federal standard of 12.9-month average inspection cycle every month since October of 2017. At that time, department officials said the bureaus responsible for inspecting uh, nursing homes were close to being fully staffed, and the department was utilizing contracted inspectors to catch up on some of the work. A U.S. Senate committee reported earlier this year that Iowa ranks 49th among the states in its ratio of inspectors to nursing homes. The report also noted that Iowa has tried to catch up on a backlog of inspections by using temporary contractors that are exceedingly expensive, costing as much as $41,000 per inspection. Time for some obituaries. A couple, three on here today. Jane Ann Haig, H-A-A-G, this is from Johns Creek, Georgia. Jane Ann Haig, 87, of Johns Creek, Georgia, formerly of Rochester, Minnesota, passed away Tuesday, December 12, at Wellstar North Fulton Hospital. Jane was born July 6, 1936, in Kankakee, Illinois, 
Dwayne and Leonie Turk Gray. She was a graduate of Joliet Catholic High School and then moved up to Rochester, where she was a graduate of Rochester Junior College. Jane began a lifelong career with IBM, where she was a secretary, an executive secretary, and eventually a secretary manager. While working at IBM, Jane met Darold Haig, D-Y-R-A-L-D Haig, and they were later united in marriage on May 26, 1966, St. John's Catholic Church. Jane was a dedicated IBM employee. She loved to travel, especially to Maui in Florida. She enjoyed watching and feeding the birds, loved all animals, was a huge Northwestern University fan, and enjoyed doing crossword puzzles. Jane was a devoted grandmother and adored her two grandchildren. She was caring, loving, and had a humble and giving heart. Jane was a huge benefactor to many charities, and she was always hoping to make a difference for someone else. Her bright, caring spirit will be missed. Jane is survived by her loving husband of 57 years, Darold, son, Jim, spouse Mary Haig of Rochester, grandchildren, Shane Haig of Rochester, and Summer Haig and her fiancé, Chris Stetler of Rochester. Jane was preceded in death by her two sisters, Adrienne Lee Hunter and Mary Lou Paxton, and by her parents, Wayne and Leone. A Mass of Christian Burial will be held 11 a.m. Thursday, December 28th, at St. Francis of Assisi Catholic Church at 1114 3rd Street, Southeast Rochester. Visitation will be held from 10 a.m. until time of Mass. Father James Burning will be the celebrant with burial at Calvary Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be made to the charity of donor's choice. To share a special memory or condolence, please visit uh, Mac and Funeral Home, M-A-C-K-E-N-F-U-N-E-R-A-L home.com. Uh, Ardell I. Van Osten, Miserve. Ardell I. Van Osten, 85, Miserve, passed away Sunday, December 17, Mercy Medical Center, North Iowa, in Mason City. Graveside services will be held at 10 a.m. on Thursday, December 21, at Meservy Cemetery in Meservy with Reverend Rodney Meester officiating. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday, December 20th, at Ewing Funeral Home, the 111 Lewix Lane South in Belmont. Ardell, uh, Ardell Ivan Van Osten, the son of John and Dina Beek Van Osten, was born on July 21, 1938 in Belmont, graduated from Meservy High School with the class of 1956. After high school, Ardell enlisted in the United States Army Reserves in 1960 and dutifully served until 1966 when he was honorably discharged. He was united in marriage and to Linda Proctor on September 21 of 63 at Richland Lutheran Church in Thornton. This year, they happily celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary couple raised their family in Meservy, where Ardell worked at the Meservy Co-op and Farm Service of Thornton. He retired in 2021. His free time, Ardell enjoyed trips to the casino, spending time with his beloved cat, Sophie, but most of all enjoyed spending time with his family. And here's uh, one for Kristen Claire Blazik, uh, who is 56 of Mason City. She died Sunday, December 17th at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City. 
Mass of Christian Burial will be held 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, the 27th at uh, Holy Family Parish in New Hampton. Interment will follow at Calvary Cemetery in New Hampton. Friends may greet the family from 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, 26th of December at Hugeback Johnson Funeral Home and Crematory in New Hampton. Visitation continues an hour prior to the Mass on Wednesday at the church. Online condolences may be left at Huge, H-U-G-E-B-A-C-K, funeralhome.com. The number there is 641-394-4334. And here's an article uh, called Clear Lake's Candy Cane Lane Beckons. And this uh, page is full of uh, beautiful pictures. One of the things underneath it, the text underneath it says, Residents of Orchard Lane in Clear Lake, known as Candy Cane Lane, have decorated their yards with festive lights and candy canes for the holidays. And it kind of reads, written by Robin McClelland of the Globe Gazette. In 2020, as Iowans struggled with the effects of an extended pandemic, Amanda Farmer and her neighbors on Orchard Lane and Clear Lake were planning an event with surprising staying power. What began as a neighborhood holiday decoration theme has turned into an annual spectacle that draws families from all around the area. Visit Candy Cane Lane this season at Orchard Lane in Clear Lake and tour the festive lights and displays. Years ago, the residents of Orchard Lane spruced up their homes for the holiday season. Over time, matching candy cane displays graced the driveways of neighborhood residents and Candy Cane Lane was born. Farmer is a part owner of uh, Culver's Locator at 1204 North 25th Street in Clear Lake. 2020, she wanted to find a way to help residents connect and feel less isolated. She and her business partners always have an eye out for how to best support their community. And the idea of giving out a scoop of fresh frozen custard on the holiday tour seemed like a no-brainer. The first uh, year, we gave out over 700 scoops of custard, Farmer said. The line of cars was blocks long, and every time we had to run up to the restaurant for another tub of custard, someone had to carry it to the house. It was too backed up for the delivery. Farmer says the scoop count rises every year depending on how you scoop. Each tub holds about 120 scoops of custard, and that's a lot of tubs, she explained. On Saturday, free scoops of Culver's frozen custard will be dished out at 302 Orchard Lane from 6 to 7 p.m. Neighborhood is open for viewing throughout the season after dark. I think it spreads a little every year, said Farmer. It was Orchard Lane, and now Fairway Drive is participating. It's a lot of fun. And here's a couple of highlights from today in history. 1991, 11 of the 12 former Soviet republics proclaimed the birth of the Commonwealth of Independent States and the death of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. On this date in 1991, in 1995, the city of Bethlehem passed from Israel to Palestinian control. In 2009, the Obama administration imposed a three-hour limit on how long airlines can keep passengers waiting inside planes delayed on the ground. In 2015, the nation's three-decade-old ban on blood donations from gay and bisexual men was formally lifted, but major restrictions continued to limit who could give blood in the U.S. In 2017, Uh, The U.N. General Assembly voted overwhelmingly to denounce President Donald Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, largely ignoring Trump's threat to cut off aid to any country that went against him. And in 2020, President-elect Joe Biden received his first dose of the coronavirus vaccine on live television 
as part of a growing effort to convince the American uh, public the inoculations were safe. And you are listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette and soon the Fort Dodge Messenger, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And so now we're going to turn to the headlines on the Fort Dodge Messenger. Front page, Thursday, December 21. Headline is Air Guard Unit to Leave Fort Dodge. Military confirms upcoming move. Date to be determined is written by Bill Shea. The Iowa Air National Guard unit that has been a presence in Fort Dodge for 75 years will be moving out of the community, a military spokeswoman confirmed Wednesday. It is known that the one it is known that the 133rd Test Squadron will be going away, said Jackie Schmillen, Public Affairs Director for the Iowa National Guard. The big thing is the timeline, she added. There is no decision on when that movement happens. She added that the squadron will be getting a new mission, a new mission once it relocates. What that mission will be has not been decided yet, she said. The squadron now has a two-part mission. Its 130 members test electronics, radios, and radars before they are acquired for use by the Air Force. They also track and direct military planes. Fort Dodge Mayor Matt Bemrich said he is very disappointed in a decision that he said is not good for the community. It's definitely disappointing for them to decide to move, he said. We'd always rather have the squadron have its place in Fort Dodge where it was founded. Bemridge said he doesn't believe local leaders have any way to prevent the squadron from being relocated. Squadron like the Fort Dodge outfit is one of the smaller units in the Air Force or Air National Guard. According to Schmillen, squadrons are generally located with a larger unit called a wing. The Fort Dodge squadron is not located with a wing. It is really unique to have a standalone unit away from a wing, he said, or she said. There are two wings in Iowa, the 185th Air Refueling Wing in Sioux City and the 132nd Wing, former fighter plane unit, in Des Moines. Earlier, or either of them could be the eventual new home of the 133rd. She said a push to move the squadron in with a wing is coming down from the Air Force. According to Bemrich, military representatives have tried to explain to local officials their reasons for wanting to move the squadron. None of those reasons will ever make me say, okay, that makes sense, he said. He said the city offered to make some changes at the Fort Dodge Regional Airport property to accommodate the squadron's needs. I didn't hear a lot of interest, the mayor said. We offered to spend time and money doing some things for them, and none of that seemed like it was of interest. Smillen said no decisions have been made about the future use of the squadron's property. We have not spent any time assessing that, Brimbridge said. The local Air National Guard unit was established in Fort Dodge in 1948 as the 133rd Aircraft Control and Warning Squadron. It marked its 75th anniversary with the September 16 event at its facility. 
During that event, Major General Stephen Osborne, the Adjutant General of the Iowa National Guard, said the squadron has truly made an impact not only in Iowa, but for security and stability across the globe. Front page again, uh, another article, life-changing it is titled, Wheels for Work Program in Need of Vehicle Donations, written by Kelby Wingert. For so many struggling families, transportation can be a major barrier to just about everything. Without reliable transportation, parents can't get to work and their kids can't get to school. And for those with health needs, lack of transportation can stand in the way of doctors' appointments and receiving treatment. The Fort Dodge Community Foundation and United Way realized this more than a decade ago and to tear down those barriers, created the Wheels for Work program and its sister program, Wheels for Health. The programs provide safe, reliable vehicles to families in need of transportation to work, school, and medical appointments at no cost to the recipients. United Way partners with Fort Dodge Ford Lincoln Toyota to complete whatever maintenance work is needed to get donor vehicles roadworthy for their new owners. The dealership donates the parts and labor, Fort Dodge Ford General Manager Matt Johnson said. Recently, Wheels for Work received its first donation since before the COVID-19 pandemic. Dennis Hunter of Fort Dodge donated a 1995 Buick Regal that had belonged to his parents. My parents have been gone for a few years, he said. They were farmers and they did a lot of donating their time with volunteer work. And with our Christian faith, our family tries to help those in need as much as we can afford. Hunter said he's known about the Wheels for Work program for a while and is familiar with the United Way's work in the community. As the director of the Closed Closet at First Baptist Church, he's worked with them on other projects. Julie Python, P-I-T-O-N is the spelling, program co- uh, coordinator for the United Way, said the organization is very grateful for the donation to Wheels for Work because they haven't been able to help families in need of reliable transportation for a few years because they weren't receiving car donations. COVID hit Uh, COVID hit every family really hard, and then inflation on top of that too, she said. We know a lot of families that have multiple vehicles weren't really in a position to just donate one. They were trying to sell them on the market or turn them in for an upgrade, and that's totally respectable. But our donations have really uh, declined since COVID. Over the past 15 years or so, Wheels for Work has provided reliable transportation to around 70 families in the Fort Dodge area. The Johnson family even expanded the program to their Ames dealership location, where they've served another 30 families in need. It's been amazing and life-changing for families, Python said of the program. We see the need for transportation for a lot of low-income families. Donations are tax-deductible, making the program a win-win all the way around, Johnson said. We appreciate any donation, Python said. Well, the vehicle doesn't necessarily have to run. Fort Dodge Ford will send a tow truck to pick it up. We accept all models, years, conditions, Johnson said. Anything is appreciated. Financial donations to the program are accepted as well. Any of those things are super helpful to the program to help us help families, Python said. 
Recipients of the donated vehicles must be referred to the United Way by a partner human service agency, Python said. Sometimes a school district will provide names of folks that they know are really struggling to get their kiddos to school, she said. Once a family is referred to the program, they fill out an application, which is then vetted by United Way staff. There are some requirements for the applicants, Python said. They must be working and have car insurance, among other qualifications. The recipient for Hunter's donation hasn't been selected yet. Python said United Way staff are still venting applications and hope to hand the keys over to a family in need by the end of the year. I would say we live in the best community and region in the state, Johnson said. People are so giving and we're just blessed to play a role in it. And through donations like this to great agencies for a deserving family, it just really warms your heart, especially during the holidays, to be a part of something that is life-changing or life-saving. For more information on the wheels uh, for a work program or to donate a vehicle, contact the Fort Dodge Community Foundation and United Way at 515-573-3179 or visit their offices at 24 North Ninth Street, Suite B. Vehicle donations can also be taken directly to Fort Dodge Ford Lincoln Toyota, 2723 Fifth Avenue South. Feenstra to seek third term in the U.S. House, written by Bill Shea. U.S. Representative Randy Feenstra announced Wednesday that he will seek re-election in 2024. The Republican from Hull will be seeking his third term. He represents the 4th Congressional District, which includes Webster County and all of its surrounding counties. Altogether, it includes 39 counties in northern and western Iowa. I ran for Iowa. I ran for Congress on the, on the promise that I would deliver real conservative results for our families, farmers, Main Street businesses, and rural communities, Feinstra said in announcing his candidacy. Over the, over the last three years, I've introduced legislation to finish the border wall, ban China from buying American farmland, and cut wasteful government spending, he added. I've also voted to protect girls' sports and Biden's student loan bailouts and provide our veterans with the high-quality health care and benefits that they deserve. Feaster won his first term in 2020. He replaced U.S. Representative Steve King of Chiron, who he defeated along with three other candidates in the spring of 2020 Republican primary election. Feaster had previously served as a state senator. He had also served as the Sioux County Treasurer and was the city administrator of Hull for seven years. He was a business professor at Dort College in Sioux Center. Feaster has been endorsed by all of Iowa's statewide elected officials and the rest of its congressional delegation, plus multiple state lawmakers. Ryan Melton is seeking the Democratic nomination in the 4th Congressional District. Page 3. Health officials push to get school children vaccinated as more U.S. parents opt out, is the headlines, written by Devi Shastri. When Idaho had a rare measles outbreak a few months ago, health officials scrambled to keep it from spreading. In the end, 10 people, all in one family, were infected and all, all unvaccinated. This time, the state was lucky, said the region's medical director, Dr. Perry Jansen. The family quickly quarantined, and the children were already taught at uh, were already taught at home. The outbreak could have been worse if the kids were in public school, 
given the state's low vaccination rates, he said. In Idaho last year, parents opted out of state-required vaccines for 12% of kids entering kindergarten, highest rate in the nation. We tend to forget the diseases like measles and polio used to kill people, said Jansen, medical director of the Southwest District Health Department, which handled the outbreak in September. All states require children to have certain routine vaccines to go to public school and often private school and daycare to prevent outbreaks of once common childhood diseases like measles, mumps, whooping cough, chickenpox, and polio. All provide exemptions for children who have a medical reason for avoiding the shots. Most also offer waivers for religious beliefs. 15 allow a waiver for any personal belief. Last school year, vaccination waivers among kindergartners hit an all-time high, 3% in total, according to a recent Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report. Waivers for religious or personal beliefs have been on the rise, driven by some states loosening laws, and others by vaccine misinformation and political rhetoric amplified during the COVID-19 pandemic. But in Idaho, a parent only has to provide a signed statement to get a waiver, the state's health department said. Change in state law before the 2018-19 school year made it easier to get waivers. The state exemptions in Idaho that year, the state's exemption rate that year was 7.7%. Do some obituaries now. I have four or five here. Maxine Henry, Fort Dodge, 89 years old, died December 19 uh, at the Marion Home. Funeral services will be held at 9.30 a.m. Saturday, December the 23rd at the Gunderson Funeral Chapel. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday at Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Services. Maxine M. Porter, daughter of Lyle and Mildred Messerly Porter was born on September 18, 1934. She graduated from Ortho, Ortho High School in 1952 on December of 31. On December 31 of 1953, Maxine married Claire Henderson. I'm sorry, Claire Henry in Sioux City. Couple made their home outside of Fort Dodge, and Maxine worked at Globe Union, retiring upon its closure. Maxine enjoyed knitting, collected anything Mickey and Minnie Mouse, and was a huge Hawkeye fan. If one wanted her opinion or didn't, she'd give it. She deeply loved and was loved by her family. Survivors include her children, Michelle, a spouse Harley Jr. Foster, Thomas Henry, and Richard Henry, son-in-law Kenneth Swordren, all of Fort Dodge, nine grandchildren, 22 great-grandchildren, and four great-great-grandchildren. Her siblings, John, spouse Sharon Porter, Gould, spouse Muriel Montgomery, Linda Havlick, and Linda Havlick. She was preceded in death by her husband, Claire, in 2013, and her daughter, Deborah Swordgen, that's S-J-O-G-R-E-N, in 2021. Darvin Hosworth, Havlick. Funeral service, 10.30 a.m. Friday at the Hope Church in Havlock, Iowa. Burial in the Washington Cemetery near Havlock. Visitation, 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. Friday at the Hope Church Powers Net Funeral Home. Gary Hopkins of Lawrence, age 89, passed away Tuesday, December 19th at Park Hall in Hemmetsburg. 
Funeral service is 1.30 p.m. Wednesday, December the 27th at United Methodist Church in Lawrence, Iowa with Reverend Deb Parkinson officiating. Burial will take place in the Lawrence Cemetery near Lawrence. Visitation from 12.30 to 1.30 p.m. Wednesday, December 27th at the church. Powers Funeral Home of Lawrence uh, is handling the arrangements. And for online condolences and obituaries, you can visit powersfh.net. Robert Bailey uh, of Lawrence, funeral service 1.30 p.m. Friday at the United Methodist Church in Lawrence. Burial in the Lawrence Cemetery, visitation 12.30 to 1.30 Friday at the church. And powersfh.net if you want more. Carl Johnson, Mallard, funeral services will be 11 a.m. Thursday, December 28th. At Trinity Lutheran Church in Mallard, visitation will be 4 to 6 p.m. Wednesday, December 27th at church. And you can go to lentzfuneralhome.com for more information. Veronica Parsons, Algona, Celebration of Life is 11 a.m. Friday, the 22nd at First Congregational Church, Algona. Visitation is 10 a.m. until service time at church. And lentzfuneralhome.com is funeral home. Turning to sports for the moment, Iowa State women pull away from UNI. Crooks scores 16. The dateline is Ames. Audi Crooks scored 16 points as the Iowa State women picked up an 87-70 victory over Northern Iowa here inside Hilton Coliseum Wednesday night. Crooks, a freshman who led Bishop Kerrigan to back-to-back state championships, registered her 10th straight game with at least 10 points. She finished 6 of 8 shootings, 6 of 8 shooting on the night with a 3-pointer, 5 rebounds, 2 assists, and 2 block shots. Kelsey, Kelsey Jones matched Crooks with 16 for the Cyclones, 7-4 overall, as Addie Brown, Isnell Natabu, and Emily Bryan all scored 11. Hannah Bellinger added 10 in the win. Brown recorded her fifth straight double with a double and sixth of the season, grabbing 12 rebounds and dishing out seven assists. Natabu had her first double uh, double and recorded her seventh 700th career rebound. With a commanding 65-48 lead entering the fourth, Crooks made back-to-back layups to begin the quarter. The Cyclones are 6-1 at home with this year after shooting 51% from the field, 50% from the three-point line, and 76% at the free-throw line. Maya McDermott led all scores with 30 points, knocking down four three-pointers. She also had four assists with Rachel Haitola, scoring 16 before fouling out. Iowa State begins Big 12 conference play on Saturday, December 30th, when they travel to Oklahoma State. Northern Iowa, 1-8, plays Missouri State that same afternoon. Another story on the front page of the sports section, entitled Hawks Take Care of Business in Holiday Tune-Up. The dateline is Iowa City. It's an AP article. Tony Perkins had 23 points, 7 assists, and 6 rebounds. Peyton Sandfort scored 18 points, including 4 three-pointers, and grabbed... Ten rebounds, and Iowa pulled away late in the first half to beat Maryland-Baltimore County by a final score of 103-81 Wednesday night. Sanford was 7-12 of shooting and had six assists. 
Ben Kinecki, who made eight, I think that's K-N-K-E, I think that is correct, who made eight of 11 from the field, added 17 points and 12 boards. Patrick McCaffrey scored 14 points, and Brock Harding finished with 10 points, 12 assists, and four steals for Iowa, 7-5. Our defense was horrendous to start the game. Unacceptable, Hawkeye head coach Fran McCaffrey said. We have to be better than that defensively. That was as bad of a defensive effort as we've had in a long time. Luckily, it wasn't for 40 minutes. Kahandarus, K-H-Y-D-A-R-I-U-S, Kahandarus Smith, scored seven points in a 9-2 run as the Hawkeyes went three minutes without a made field goal, and UMBC, 5-9, led 26-21 with eight minutes left in the first half. After Perkins made two free throws, McCaffrey threw down a dunk to end the drought, and Iowa scored 27 of the final 37 first-half points to take a 50-36 to 36 advantage to halftime. The retrievers trailed by double figures the rest of the way. Deion Brown made five of six from the three-point range and scored 23 points to lead UMBC, and Smith finished with 20 points. UMBC, which has lost four games in a row and five of its last six, shot 46%, 32 of 69 from the field, and made 13 of 25, 52% from three-point range, but had a minus 11 turnover margin as Iowa scored 23 points off 15 retrievers' turnovers. Iowa, which went into the game averaging 10.5 turnovers per game, number 48 nationally, committed a season-low four. The Hawkeyes assisted on 15 of its 20 field goals in the first half and 33 of 42 field goals in the game. The 33 assists are a season high and one shy of the single-game school record. Harding's 12 assists are the most by a Hawkeye freshman since Jordan Bohannon's 13 against TCU in 2017 in the NIT. He has three games with seven or more assists this season. The 12 assists are the most by a Hawkeye this season. Here are some things, uh, sports on TV, you might be interested in. Men's College Basketball, Nevada versus Temple is in Honolulu. It's 2 p.m. on ESPNU. TCU versus Old Dominion in Honolulu is 4 p.m. ESPNU. Kentucky at Louisville, 5 p.m. ESPN. Jacksonville at Purdue is 5.30 p.m. BTN. North Alabama at Indiana, 7 p.m. BTN. Sanford, Stanford at San Diego State, 8 p.m., CBSSN. Georgia Tech versus uh, UMass in Honolulu, 8 p.m., ESPN2. Portland's at Hawaii, 10.30 p.m., ESPN2. Pro football, there's a New Orleans at L.A. Rams, 7.15 p.m., that's on Prime. College football, you would find uh, Boca, Boca Raton Bowl, South Florida versus Syracuse, 7 p.m. ESPN. If you're interested in pro basketball, L.A. Lakers are at Minnesota, 8 p.m. on NBA. NBA. And there's a premier legal soccer, Brighton and Hove Albion at Crystal Palace, 2 p.m. USA is the channel. And let's see what else we got here. We have um, high school girls basketball. Geico Holiday Hoops, third place game, 7 p.m. ESPN. Championship is 9 p.m. ESPN. 
And what else we got here? State calendar. Uh, women's basketball, Drake at North Dakota is at noon. Women's basketball, Iowa versus Loyola, Chicago at 5 p.m. That's the time. Men's basketball, Iowa State versus East Illinois at 7 p.m. And men's basketball, UNI at Northern Illinois at 7 p.m. And that's about, um, about all I can pick up from there. So pass on for the moment. And the Drake men, they've coasted 92 to 55. Their game headline or the dateline is Des Moines. AP article. Uh, Atten Wright scored 24 points as Drake beat Alcorn State 92 to 55 on Tuesday night. Wright added four steals for the Bulldogs, 11 and 1. Kyron Gibson scored 19 points and added six rebounds. Kevin Overton was four of eight shooting including two for four from three-point range and went three for three from the foul line to finish with 13 points. The Bulldogs picked up their eighth straight victory. Jeremiah Kendall finished with 19 points for the Braves, uh, who are 1-11, and 11, and Steph, uh, Stephen Bayard added 11 points for Alcorn State. Jeremiah Gambrell also had 11 points. The Braves extended their losing streak to 10 in a row. Here are a couple more stories. Won't be able to read them, but the headlines are um, Iowa introduces slew of in-state football talent. That's one article. And there's another one. Iowa State continues to build on the recruiting trail. Here's an article. The Golden Gavel Award goes to Iowa's Higgins. Dateline's Iowa City. University of Iowa senior linebacker Jay Higgins was announced as the unanimous winner of the 2023 Duke Slater Golden Gavel Award which was voted upon by a group of Iowa media members who cover the program on a regular basis. Higgins, an Indianapolis native, is the third winner of the annual award. He joins inaugural winner Kevon Merriweather of 2021 and Spencer Petrus, 2022, as Golden Gavel recipients. By description, the Golden Gavel will go to the Iowa football player who not only is most cooperative with local media, but exhibits themselves with professional integrity in all interactions and every reporter from point prior print rather to television who covers Iowa mentioned Gay Higgins Jay Higgins first when it uh, came to this award said Scott Dauterman a sports writer with the athletic and former messenger journalist who presented Higgins with the golden gavel the class and professionalism with which Jay displayed in all situations not only was impressive it was Truly remarkable. The award is named after Duke Slater, who was a charter member of the College Football Hall of Fame and a 2021 inductee of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Slater earned his law degree from the University of Iowa while playing in the NFL, and he became the first African-American elected to the Cook County Superior Court. The playing surface at Kinnick Stadium was renamed Duke Slater Field in summer of 2021. Well, folks, that just about wraps up our time for today. Brings us to the end of uh, today's reading of the uh, Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger, December 21st, Thursday. I've been your reader, Doug Kretzinger. want to thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Have a good day.